The Guardian. Take a look around you at the trees, birds and bees. Life on our planet has been evolving for billions of years and it's come up with some pretty smart inventions. For example, kingfishers can dive into water to catch a fish without a big noisy splash, a perfect predator and the perfect inspiration for one bird-watching engineer on a Japanese bullet train, whose predecessors had had a bit of a noise problem. Going so fast that they created pressure waves when they entered tunnels, resulting in a deafening tunnel boom. By copying the kingfisher's beak, the trains can travel faster, consume less electricity, and no longer create those incredible booms. It's an example of something called biomimicry, where technology emulates nature's tried and tested designs. But why is it so hard to copy nature? And should we mimic the living world in the first place? Of course, some people are choosing to learn from nature in a way that isn't necessarily something I think the other organisms would approve of, you know, so the military is particularly interested in learning from nature to help them solve solutions, including better nuclear warheads and so on, which I'm guessing the organism that inspired those would not be, <laughs> would not approve of that technology. Hey, hi. hi. Nice to meet you, good Jordan. To you. Good to see you. How are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Yeah, fine. Sorry I'm late. That's right. <laughs> it's fine. We're fiddling with microphones and things. <laughs> Look at this. Get this shield in place, first of all. <laughs> it makes it sound like we're going to have a battle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> going to get my shield in place. <laughs> going to polish my sword. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and in this very special podcast, Chips With Everything has teamed up with Ian Sample from The Guardian's Science Weekly. We're calling it Science With Everything. Together, we're hoping to find out why nature is so hard to mimic. And we speak to one person who's managed not only to copy photosynthesis, but to improve on it too. I beat out photosynthesis. And the reason I say we beat it out is because we did it 10 times better than natural photosynthesis. But first, I wanted to get in touch with an expert in this field to learn a little more about why we started trying to copy nature's genius. Hello. Hello. Hi, Dana. This is Jordan from The Guardian. Hi, Jordan. How are you? Dana Baumeister is a biomimic who co-founded a consultancy company called Biomimicry 3.8. Something that would also give back, um, take care of nature. Dana is based in Montana in the US, so I called her on Skype. She told me that when she was studying for her doctorate in biology in 1997, she read the then-new book, Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature. And serendipitously, Janine lived... It was written by Janine Benyus, whom we can thank for popularizing the term biomimicry. And um, she started off as a natural history writer. And then when she started noticing that a lot of people were learning from natural history and applying it to human design challenges... 
she said, there's something interesting here. And she started compiling those stories, gave it a name called Biomimicry, and um, came out with this book in November of 1997. And I met her in January of 1998. And the two of us have worked towards normalizing, if you will, biomimicry as a meme in the world, um, as a strong driver for how humans can learn to fit in again on the planet. We've already talked about the Japanese Shinkansen bullet train, for which engineers drew inspiration from the kingfisher's streamlined beak. But there are many more examples of technology that mimics nature. So many that it's hard to count them all. In the beginning, I could keep track of all of the great examples that were out there because there weren't actually that many, you know, maybe a hundred or so. And now our database has well over 5,000 examples of um, different technologies. The applications range everywhere from, you know, transportation, engineering. Uh, there's a lot of examples in robotics. But there's also examples in the built environment, different kinds of ways of creating buildings and generating the functions that we need buildings to perform for us, as well as uh, examples that aren't in the tangible space. They're, they're more in the metaphorical, different ways of designing um, cellular networks and information exchanges or managing traffic flow in China by emulating the way ants navigate and coordinate information to even um, different kinds of org dev and, and HR kinds of needs that are mimicking systems like how nature cooperates. So what do you think is the main reason then that people copy nature? Well, it's, it's not a direct copying, so I want to be careful about using that term. It really is emulating because we're, we're never exactly in the same context under the same set of uh, rules and building materials and so on. So, so we do our best to emulate that, that design principle, the design lesson that's behind nature. I think that people are drawn to it for a couple of reasons. Of course, we, we live in a world where innovation is needed and we're craving it and we're looking for new ways of thinking and new breakthroughs. In fact, a study that overlaid nature's innovations with human patent database found only an 11% overlap. And so there's this huge opportunity space to delve into nature's genius. And so I think a lot of people are drawn to that. But I also think there's something that um, we call it quieting your cleverness. There's a piece of sort of setting human ego aside and realizing that we don't necessarily have all the answers. And what might it look like if we tapped into these strategies that have been sort of uh, honing their R&D practice for over almost four billion years? In looking for potential downsides, if any, to biomimicry then, is there maybe a possibility that in seeking to emulate nature, people maybe restrict themselves too much when looking to develop new technologies? Could it kind of blind you to other possibilities? You know what I have found in my work is it does actually the opposite. We humans are pretty proud of ourselves, but we're not that clever. I just did a charrette with a company the other day for one of their challenges and we had 15 people in the room, and in two hours, we generated 80 uh, concepts from the biology that we had prepared for their particular challenge. 
and 65 of those concepts were completely new ideas to them. They ended up advancing 25 of them forward. So mm. I see something quite opposite rather than being restrictive. Can you give us some examples of how biomimicry can be used to solve people's problems? You know, what's going on today in the field? So the application space is, you know, definitely there's some in the widget realm, but we're most interested in the places where we can have kind of the, the needed impact that we need to have in order to make humans welcome as a species still on the planet um, going forward. So a lot of work in sustainability. How do we change our chemistries in our products? Um, everything from preservatives to coloring so that we're not causing so much harm to technologies that will, you know, scrub particulates out of uh, flue gas, uh, including harmful, you know, small metals and, um, and technologies around carbon fixation. So it's, there's, a, there's a lot of different possibilities. What are some of the challenges when it comes to trying to emulate nature? You've spoken about how you, you know, you want to call it emulating rather than mimicking. What are the difficulties there? Some of the challenges come from people uh, assume that it's really easy because, of course, you, you point to the bullet train, for example, and you go, oh, look at the look at the, the shape. We just mimic the beak. You put a new beak on the train and lo and behold, you've, you've got a solution. So a lot of people assume it'll be a quick and easy fix. Um, but it actually takes time. You know, it, it, it takes time, of course, not just from a classic R&D perspective, but it also takes skills and nuance to figure out what biology is most relevant, will be most useful, will be most helpful. So um, there's a little bit of a disconnect between how obvious these answers look, but also how willing people are, are to take the time and to make the investment to have these huge breakthroughs. So Dana says biomimicry is hard for many reasons, but Ian, you spoke to someone who seems to have pulled it off by creating something that mimics how leaves photosynthesize. Yeah, what he's done is pretty impressive, although what he's come up with doesn't look much like a leaf. It's more like a black postage stamp. But he agrees with Dana, nature is hard to mimic. In fact, Daniel spent decades trying to do this, and he thinks the reason it's so hard is because it's alive. Well, nature's hard to mimic because it needs to live. And so when I look at photosynthesis, it wasn't that hard for me to mimic because I said, I don't need to do the living part. So my thing doesn't look anything like a leaf. It's functionally like a leaf. It took all the basic principles of a leaf, but then I didn't say, I'm gonna try to build it piece by piece to exactly look like you, photosynthesis, because you have all these other requirements to be a living organism. What I think is especially impressive about Daniel's work is that not only has he copied this process, but he's improved on it too. And how exactly did he manage that? You'll have to wait and see as it's time for the break. Jordan and I will be back in a minute. The World Cup might be over, but that doesn't mean we have to stop talking about football. And for one woman in particular, the beautiful game is necessary to bring peace to a community. 
being a woman, you know, being a Muslim woman, most people assume, well, I can't even stand and speak for myself. So people want to do things for me and I always say, no, just give me the ball and I'll score the goal myself. Join me, Lucy Lamble, on this week's episode of Small Changes as I chat to Fatuma abdul Qadir Adan about how she uses football to bring together a fractured community in the Marsabit area in northern Kenya. Just head over to theguardian.com slash podcast or search Small Changes on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back to this special collaboration with two of The Guardian's best podcasts, Science Weekly and Chips With Everything. Otherwise known as Science With Everything. I'm Ian Sample. And I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Before the break, we looked at what exactly biomimicry is and why nature is so hard to mimic. It seems like the problem is a typically human flaw, impatience. But now we turn to one person who is clearly very patient indeed, because he's recreated photosynthesis artificially. Daniel Gino Serra from Harvard University, and I'm the Patterson Rockwood Professor of Energy. You can think of Daniel as the man who took on the inner workings of the leaf and won. Plants can convert about 1% of the sunlight that falls on them into fuel. But Daniel has managed to use 10% of the sun's energy, making his technology, well, 10 times more effective than a plant. Quite impressive, eh? Very. But what I want to know is how. Well, photosynthesis is a two-step process. Step 1. Splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen with sunlight. What we did is we took a piece of silicon, and silicon is the material that's on a roof when you see a solar panel. And so what we did is we kind of sheared off everything and said, well, just take the silicon. On one side, we'll coat it with a catalyst that when it's energized from sunlight, it will split water to O2. And on the other side of silicon, we'll have a coating that takes the energized electrons from silicon and makes hydrogen. So you can sort of think of it as a sandwich, the middle piece of the sandwich, the meat, or the if you're a vegetarian, the vegetarian uh, <laughs> vegan uh, piece, that's the silicon. And then the top piece of bread is a catalyst when energized makes oxygen from water, and the bottom piece of bread when energized from silicon makes hydrogen. Step two. Take the hydrogen and combine it with carbon dioxide to make fuel. What we did is we took a bacteria and we equipped it to eat hydrogen. And you can do that with genetics. We put a special machine enzyme in the bacteria and it eats hydrogen. It can then, the bacteria, breathe in carbon dioxide from the air and then grow off of it. So in one case, you could just have the bacteria grow wildly, and that's biomass. And that we did at 10% efficiency. And another process, 
you can engineer the bacteria not to grow, kind of to stay in a stasis, a steady state. And then we take the hydrogen, and when it breathes in the carbon dioxide, it actually internally makes a liquid fuel. And that liquid fuel, you can take and burn in an engine, just like you could do with any fuel. And what is that liquid fuel? Does it have the kind of energy density that we would be able to use for some of the more sort of energetic requirements we have, like jet fighters, airliners, things like that? Yep, there's uh, different types of fuels for different parts of our society. So for cars, we use petrol. It's eight carbons strung together, like pearls on a necklace. So there's eight carbons. One of the fuels we made had five carbons. When you get to jet fuels and diesel fuels, they have a lot more carbons. They can be up to 14, 16 carbons. And we've also done that. We haven't published that yet. But these fuels have the energy intensity that you use the regular fuels that you use in everyday society. This all sounds very promising, and Daniel believes the technology is not only scalable, but could be competitively priced too. At a large scale, I believe it can be, and, and just not my research, but researchers from all over the world have made unbelievable strides in renewable energy. Now, There's a big but, though, and it's nothing to do with science and technology. Any guesses, Jordan? Oh, I hate guessing. But if we're looking for someone or something to blame for obstructing a technology that sounds wonderful and useful, is it capitalism? It could be. Because you've invested trillions of dollars in an existing infrastructure and you've already paid it off, there is nothing science can do to replace trillions of dollars of paid off infrastructure. So without the right government policies, without the will of people who vote for people who have those policies in mind, you're never going to go to scale because you'll never be able to be cheaper than multi-trillion dollar paid off investments. So that's where science then gets frustrated or scientists get frustrated because we can see the path forward, but that's not enough. You need the political will and you need people to decide that's their path for the future. And that point you make there is really true for renewables full stop, I presume, that all of these contenders are up against an existing infrastructure with all of the commercial and political interests embedded in that. That's right. And and that's the reality of the world. You can't complain about it, but well, I can complain about it on the political side, but there's nothing science can do. Nobody's going to come up with a magic bullet to overcome just the raw economics of this. Now, what's unfortunate, the raw economics is it's going to be super expensive to keep using carbon. So, for instance, in most of the world, the financial centers are on coasts. With sea level rise, you will have water starting to flood these centers. And in the future, I guarantee countries are going to be spending tens, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars to manage water. But that cost isn't seen now, so we're undervaluing the cost of carbon right now. So I could make an argument when I look forward, the amount of money you're going to have to spend as a society to keep using carbon is going to cost more than what I'm talking about. 
And do you think then that if this is to become a reality, it's a case of the cost of yours coming down at some point crossing the point where the price of gasoline go is going up? Yeah, this is always the trick with incentives. Like I was saying before, gasoline isn't going to go up that much because of this large infrastructure. So then what you need to do is have policies to make the gasoline a little bit more expensive to allow other technologies to get competitive. The important point there is you have to make sure the technologies keep getting developed to drive costs down because eventually you want incentives to go away. Daniel, thank you so much for sharing your time with us and taking us through all this. It's been really interesting to have you on. Thanks. Thanks for also having me. Politics and policies aside, there's one more thing we need to consider. The possible ethical implications of how and why we attempt to copy nature. Here's Dana Baumeister again. Of course, some people are choosing to learn from nature in a way that isn't necessarily something I think the other organisms would approve of, you know, so the military is particularly interested in learning from nature to help them solve solutions, including better nuclear warheads and so on, which I'm guessing the organism that inspired those would not be, <laughs> would not approve of that technology. What organism inspired the nuclear warhead? Well, there's an underwater nuclear warhead that is designed to swim like a tuna fish so that it is assumed to be tuna fish by sonar rather than a nuclear warhead. And, and we always take a strong ethos to our approach, both in how we do the emulation, we don't want to do any more harm, but also in what problems we choose to solve. Like, we think that we should really focus on the problems that the world most needs solving, not just environmental problems, but also social uh, challenges as well. So did you know there were nuclear weapons out there that swim around like tuna fish? Yeah, terrifying thought. I had no idea that tuna nukes existed. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that either, but I think the thing that is most interesting about that is just the idea that it could be bad to mimic nature. Like the way we've been sold this idea of biomimicry is that it's just by its very nature, pardon the pun, a good thing to copy what the natural world is doing. But there are all these other implications that we're not really thinking about. What I find really kind of breathtaking about these examples of biomimicry is if you think of what, natural selection has had at its fingertips if you like to produce these amazing designs it has to always start with what it's got already and just improve on it it can't start from scratch like we can when we design something it can't use high temperatures high pressures it can't use all these different chemicals we have at our disposal and yet it still comes up with these incredibly effective designs for things that are better than things we can come up with when it's so constrained, when it has so little to play with. And I find that really lovely. It shows you how effective natural selection is over what admittedly is like billions of years. So maybe we should just give it a rest as humans and just let nature do everything for us. No, I think it's a sign that we can do way better than what you find in nature. Because look, if this is what nature can do, okay, all nature has on its side is time. But if this is what nature can do when it's so constrained. 
but what should we be able to do? Ian, if you had to copy something from nature, what would it be? It would absolutely be the mechanism by which quite a few species of spider used to take flight. So they fire out sometimes one little thread, sometimes a whole fan of them, and those strands of spider silk catch the wind, but they also use electrostatic forces um, using the Earth's electric field to take to the air and they fly. I think it'd be a cool thing to be able to do, get home quicker. So Ian, what you're saying is you basically want to be Spider-Man. Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) Special thanks to Daniel and Dana for making time for us this week. You can find links to everything we've talked about here on our website. Head over to theguardian.com forward slash podcasts. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. And I'm Ian Sample. Until next time, goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Listener.